right. So uh, anyway, uh, we join with Tom and welcome everybody out. I invite you to get your Bibles and follow along with us as we study from the Word of the Lord. And we'll trust that our time together will be profitable and beneficial. We're going to begin back here in the book of Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 5, beginning there in number 18, it says, And Jared lived a hundred and sixty and two years, and he begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begat Enoch eight hundred years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were nine hundred and sixty and two years, and he died. And Enoch lived sixty and five years, and he begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred and sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Methuselah lived a hundred and eighty and seven years and begat Lamech. And Methuselah lived after he begat Lamech seven hundred eighty and two years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were nine hundred and sixty-nine and two years, and he died. Our topic tonight, we're going to talk about Methuselah, and you're th probably thinking, now, there's not a lot said about Methuselah, so I guess it's going to be a super short, super short sermon. Well, it's not going to be a super long sermon, but we are going to talk about Methuselah and what's interesting about Methuselah, because when you talk about Methuselah, he was the oldest man that ever lived. He lived 969 years old. But we began there with Jared, and Jared lived 962 nine years old, 962 years old seven years uh, less than Methuselah, so Jared was pretty old. But when we talk about somebody being old or something being really old, we'll say, well, like Don Thompson, he is old as Jared. Like, well, that don't, that don't mean much. Most people wouldn't know about Jared and what, what you're talking about. Well, you say, now, Don Thompson, he's as old as Methuselah. Yeah, we know what we're talking about because we use Methuselah as a proverbial saying or a code name for someone or something that's very old. And so that's what we're going to talk about because that's, of course, the thing that's fascinating about Methuselah, that he lived 969 years old. And I guess age is sort of a relative thing. A lot of times I'll say to people, well, uh, good evening, young man, young lady, and it's an older person. Oh, well, thank you. And then I'll say, well, if Methuselah was around, would we feel old? I don't guess any of us would feel old if Methuselah was around. Being 969 years old, nobody would feel really all that old. All right, so let's look at a couple of illustrations of what we're talking about. All right, we've got up here on the screen, we've got a picture of this uh, bristlecone pine tree. Uh, nothing really fancy about it. It's not really tall. It's not like the, uh, the redwood trees of California that are extremely tall. It's not big and enormous like the sequoia trees of California, but these trees are in California in the, in the uh, uh, White Mountains there, and they grow around 9,000 feet above uh, sea level there, and they don't get a lot of rain, there's not a lot of vegetation, but what's uh, of notoriety about these bristlecone pines, they grow real slow and they grow really long. They are the oldest trees in the world. And there's, uh, at, when you go up there to that park, they have the Methuselah Trail. It's kind of a four-mile loop. You go around, you see these different pictures of these trees, the, these ancient, ancient bristlecone pine trees all over the place. And in fact, they used to have the tree that they believe was the oldest tree, and they actually call it the Methuselah Grove and the specific Methuselah tree. And people sort of wanted to take 
souvenirs from it, and then they decided, well, we need to take away the sign. Identifying the Methuselah tree in specific, uh, the guide said it's still there if you know which one it is, but it's still there, and they figure out by counting the rings, and you've got to get a magnifying glass because those rings are really tight together. It's not like reading or counting the rings of an oak tree, an apple tree, you know, trees around here. They are very fine because they grow very, very slow. And so they're very resinous and they're very dense and very hard and they uh, not uh, have problems with insects and fire, etc. And so that gives them great longevity. The oldest one would be about 4,845 years old and these trees are still living, so why couldn't these trees be older than that? Well, that would take you back around the time of the flood where the trees would have got wiped out and then started growing again after uh, the, the story of Noah and the flood. All right, so there's an example of using Methuselah, something that's really old. Well, let's look at another one. This is a picture of Masada. Masada is this hill that just sort of goes kind of almost straight up. And uh, anyway, King Herod, he made a fortress. And uh, there were like palaces and there were like uh, just interesting stuff there. It was a kind of a Roman fortress. And they had a, uh, let, me, let me give the, another picture there. It's sort of flat, had a slope to it. And every once in a while you get a rain, maybe once or twice a year. And they had a sophisticated way when the rain would flow, they caught it into cisterns. And so they had tons of water up there. They had big pools of water, so they had easy access to water. Close to the Dead Sea, and uh, anyway, there was, of course, uh, that Roman garrison. And the Roman-Jewish conflict in the first century there, uh, from 67 to 70, there was a group of Jews went up there, and they overcame those Roman garrison, and they overtook Masada, and they held out. And so what happened was that here these Jews were held out up there, and it's really easy to guard because you have this snake path. You would just kind of snake around single file to get up to the top of Masada, which is easy to protect. I mean, you're up here on Masada, there's these people come up the path, and you just toss rocks down, and easy to kill people, easy to protect, etc. and it would just be a suicide mission, and so people didn't do that. And so what the Romans did as they studied that, they, were, they had this camp over here where they could watch what was happening there. They had plenty of water, they had plenty of food stored up there, and all that. And so what they did, they built uh, this kind of uh, Roman ramp. That is, they just kept putting dirt and dirt, dirt and dirt until they could get their engines of war right up to uh, Masada there and overcome it. And there you have a picture of the snake path, and you see there you just sort of wind up there, stairs and whatever, easy to protect. And certainly people wouldn't go up uh, that way uh, in the, trying to overtake the, uh, the, the, the Jewish people there. And then ultimately what happened, they built a cable car for visitation because it is a park. I think it's in fact a national park there in the land of Israel. It is one of my dreams to see it overlooks the Dead Sea there. And you can take the cable car up or you can walk up. Uh, here's another photo looking at the Roman ramp where they moved all that dirt over a period of time. And uh, they just waited it out and they just kept taking this dirt and filling it up and built an earthen ramp all the way up to uh, the hill up there. And then here's uh, a kind of a, a view kind of looking back as it would take them up there. And here are people just walking up. This, taking the path up there. And they got, they got the sign uh, written there in uh, Hebrew and then in English, the Roman ramp. And I'm not sure, uh, there might be Italian, the bottom, uh, bottom uh, thing there. But what's interesting about Masada 
is that they were looking around not uh, too many years ago and they found an earthen jar that had some date palm pits. That is the seeds. Here's a picture of a date palm. And it's got all this fruit up there and they're kind of like, kind of like a raisin, I guess. They dry them and so they're sweet. And uh, being at the Dead Sea, it's a very arid, dry place. And it's like the, the reason these pits survive because there's hardly ever any water or rain there, just very occasionally. That's why the Dead Sea Scrolls survive for some 2,000 years. And these uh, little date uh, palm uh, 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 pits were found. And here's a picture of some dates of the date palm tree. You would sort of eat the outside and you got the seed, the pit in the inside. There there's up on the right. There they are sprouting. And there's one that's starting to grow in a little pot. And here's a Roman coin of Vespasian, who was a Roman emperor. Well, he was a general, then he became emperor. And on the back, you'll see there, uh, the back side, you'll see the date palm. So it was very, very common, this date palm. Now what they did when they found this seed in Masada, which is almost 2,000 years old, they planted that seed. That seed germinated. That seed is growing. And so here you have the Methuselah date palm from just a few years ago. And then four or five years after, here's a more updated, it's still growing. But it came from this seed of about 2,000 years old and so they call it the Methuselah date palm. All right, so just keep that in mind. They took a seed from 2000, almost 2,000 years ago, planted it, and what did they have? A date palm. Now keep that in mind because that's going to be the illustration of a very important spiritual point that we want to talk about even this evening. So from this approximately 2,000-year-old date palm seed, they've got a date palm. I right, so look at New Testament history. The church was established in the first century. We read about various verses that talk about that. Notice, for instance, there in the book of Mark, chapter 1. In Mark, chapter 1, <clears throat> and in verse 14 and 15. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So the kingdom of God, the gospel of the kingdom, uh, which, of course, is going to refer to the church, that is, God's people, and say, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So the kingdom was at hand. That is, the kingdom was soon to be established. Here you got John the Baptist. He was preaching the kingdom of God's hand. you got Jesus preaching the kingdom of God's hand. It's near. It's close. It's not like 2,000 years. You know, it's going to be established sometime like 2022, 2023, 2024. No. The kingdom was established in the first century. The church was established in the first century. Notice in the book of uh, Matthew, chapter 16 and verse 18. <clears throat> and I say also unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That's future tense when Jesus was talking there in Mark 16. I will build, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Hades, of course, is the realm of disembodied spirits. When people have plans and, and things and activities that they're working on, and then when they die, those plans just sort of come to naught. It's like somebody's going to build a house, and they get the plans, and, and they get all this, and then maybe they're in a car wreck, and the couple dies. Well, what's happened to those plans about building the house? Well, it just comes to an end. It stops. 
Here Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, and then he's going to be crucified, and he's going to be buried in, in, in a borrowed tomb, and it's like, well, it's, it, it's all over. It, it's finished. No. Jesus would come forth from the grave on the third day, and he would fulfill this promise, I'm going to build my church. There in the book of Mark chapter 9, verse 1, And he said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, There shall be some of those who stand here who shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. So Jesus says, uh, you know, he's preaching the kingdom. It's at hand. It's close. I'm going to build my church. He says when the kingdom comes, it's going to come with power. And what is this power that is going to come to pass when the coming of the kingdom? Well, look at Acts chapter 1, number 8. This has been 40 days. Jesus is showing himself with many infallible proof to the apostles. He's there gathered with them. And he tells them in verse 8, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So when the Holy Spirit would come upon them, they would be receiving power. That's when they would know and identify the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the Holy Spirit, with the coming of the power, that that's when the kingdom of God would be established. Because that's what Jesus said. And it would happen in the lifetime of those that he was talking to in Mark chapter 9. So that was just two or three years there of his ministry and then the fulfillment of that. <clears throat> uh, after that, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and in the Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And then, of course, he keeps talking with them, and then he just sort of like floats up, just sort of like a healing balloon, call up into the clouds, as you read on there in Acts chapter 1 there. And so they hang around for the next 10 days. You come to Acts chapter 2. Now it's been 50 days after his death. And it's the day of Pentecost, which would have been on a Sunday, the first day of the week. And so in verse 1 of Acts chapter 2, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were with all one accord in one place. And suddenly there come a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them separate uh, tongues, like as a fire, and sat upon each of them, that is, upon the apostles. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here the apostles gathered together on the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them, empowering them to speak in all these languages that you've not studied and have that capacity to teach and, and to speak in another language without having to study it. And it was tremendous. And so there they preached there on the day of Pentecost. They preached the first gospel sermon. People obey the gospel as we read there in verse 41, about 3,000 people. Verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. So from Acts chapter 2, you have the establishment of the New Testament church, the kingdom of God here upon the earth. That's when, that's the beginning point of the New Testament church, of the kingdom of God here upon earth. And look at that passage there in Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 10, you have Cornelius and his family and friends are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And when Peter's called out on the carpet about that, when he goes back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11, he just takes an order of what happened, that God was involved in, in all the events that were taking place. And he was there to go preach, and he was preaching to Cornelius and the Gentiles. And then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit came upon them, kind of like it did upon the apostles. And notice what Peter said there in verse 15. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them as on us at the beginning. The Holy Spirit fell on them 
uh, on them as it did on us at the beginning. Now, he did not say the Holy Spirit fell on them as it did on us since the beginning. See, there's a big difference there. If you would say, well, since the beginning, I hear you got Acts chapter 11, and you look back to Acts chapter 2, well, since Acts chapter 2, I mean, people were being baptized in the Holy Spirit. I mean, it was just a daily, weekly uh, activity. Every month, people were being baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's not what Peter said. He's over here in Acts chapter 11, and he says, the Holy Spirit fell on them, them there in uh, Cornelius, there in, in Caesarea. It fell on them as it did on us at the beginning. He has to go all the way back to Acts chapter 2 to find anything like it. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because there's only two cases of Holy Spirit baptism. That was the apostles in Acts chapter 2 and Cornelius and his family in Acts chapter 10. And Peter says it fell on them as it did on us at the beginning. But that tells us something else. The beginning of what? The beginning of what? Well, the beginning of the church. The beginning of the, of the kingdom of God here upon planet earth. That's the beginning. The beginning of the preaching of the gospel in its fullness. Jesus said, oh, it's coming, it's coming. You go before Acts chapter 2, over here. You, it's, it's coming, it's at hand. I'm going to build, I'm going to do it. You're going to see the kingdom come with power. And so on Acts chapter 2, it did come with power when the, the Holy Spirit uh, baptism fell upon the apostles. And so the church was established in the first century. And from Acts chapter 2, it's always spoken of in the present tense, not future tense. Like, well, it's going to be. The church is coming. The church is coming. The church is that. No. From Acts chapter 2, it's then spoken of in present tense because it was established in the first century in Acts chapter 2. That was the beginning point. That's the phrase that Peter said. It fell on them as it did on us at the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of King Herod's death? No. The beginning of, of, of a new Roman emperor? No. The beginning of the New Testament church. The beginning of the kingdom of God. So, the church was established. But then, when we studied the New Testament, we learned something else. It was prophesied that there was going to be a falling away. That there was going to be an apostasy. A defection. There are going to be people that are going to turn away. And so it is. Let's look at those prophecies. In the book of Acts chapter 20, Paul talking with the elders there of Ephesus, there at Miletus. He tells them in verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourself and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. See, the church was purchased. It was in existence. They were elders and overseers of the New Testament, New Testament congregation. Paul goes on to say, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. He says, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one of you night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend, unto you to, uh, commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you inheritance among them that are sanctified. Paul warned of an apostasy. There would be people, even among the elders, who are the mature uh, people that have been uh, appointed to lead the congregation from among them. The spirit of apostasy, the spirit of, of iniquity would begin to work. In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, another prophecy talks about this coming time when there would be a fallen away. Now the spirit speaks expressly. Well, what does the Spirit explicitly say that we can clearly understand? It's not something in cold that we've got to scratch our heads. Well, I'm going to have to study about that for a while and try to figure that. No. 
The Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to, uh, giving heed to seducing spirits or deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving to them who believe and know the truth. So a couple of doctrines would be identified with this apostasy, forbidding to marry. Say, well, no, you can't marry. Well, we know one group that does that, that forbids marriage of their special priesthood, commanding to abstain from meats. We know the group that does that also. And so, but it talks about that, uh, that there's going to be uh, this departing from the faith, departing from the original order. And then one more passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 also talks about this apostasy that was prophesied, that was to come. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that day of the Lord is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there be first a falling away. This falling away is going to have to take place before the coming of the Lord. A falling away. Falling away from what? Falling away from truth. A falling away, a departure, an apostasy. That, that word falling away is the word apostasy. Apostasy, I think, is the, the, the Greek term. That is, a going away from the original pattern. And that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sets in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. I used to think that was talking about the Roman Catholic Pope. Don't think it now. Though he would certainly represent one who speaks contrary to the will of God. But it says that this person is going to be in the temple of God. That is, the temple of God is the church of God, is the kingdom of God. And there would come within the church of God somebody who would rise up and say, well, this is the way we're going to do it. This is what we're going to do. It is, he is described as the son of perdition, the man of sin. It's the one who commits iniquity. And that's what Paul goes on to say, and we'll see that in verse 7. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Verse 6, and now you know what restrains that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he be taken out of the way. The son of perdition is the mystery of iniquity. Now, you've got to know what the term iniquity means. I ask people all the time in teaching, well, what does the word iniquity mean? Just for illustration. If I say, what's the word iniquity mean? Uh, you might get different answers. A common answer is, well, iniquity is sin. Well, that's true. Iniquity is sin, but that's not really the definition of iniquity. <laughs> well, iniquity is something bad. Well, iniquity is bad, but that's not really the definition of the word iniquity. If you, were, if you were asking somebody, what's the definition of iniquity? It's simply lawlessness. The state of being lawless. You see, we have law. It's the law of Christ found right here in this book we call the Bible. And you see, when people come along and say, well, you know, it doesn't, we can do something that's not found in the law of God. That, that's iniquity. Like praying to Mary. That's iniquity. What's wrong with it? We have no authority to pray to Mary. We pray to God through Jesus Christ, our great high priest. 
It answers the question of all kinds of questions. The reason we don't have ice cream, ice cream and cake on the Lord's table. Because God tells us in the law of God that we eat bread and we drink grape juice, the fruit of the vine, and memorial of the death of Jesus Christ. That's the elements, the proper elements of the Lord's Supper. Not ice cream and cake, not hamburgers and Coca-Cola, and try to make it, you know, modern. That would be iniquity. Using these things, because there's absolutely no authority in the scriptures, using that. Because God tells us what he wants, that we eat bread and we drink the cup, the fruit of the vine. Now, this uh, spirit of iniquity here, this apostasy, is that people would come along and they would not be satisfied with divine law, the will of Christ. And so they come up with these ideas from the elders. One of the first things that happened is that here you have a group of elders. There was always a plurality in local congregations where they were. And one man began to say, well, I am the presiding elder. So it made him a step above. And then the next thing you know, well, I'm a bishop and you other fellows, you're just elders. And so then the term bishop, though in the New Testament, they're referring to the same office and the same function, and they're all equal in the plurality of elders or bishops or pastors or overseers referring to that same group of men. That's how the New Testament uses that term. But then people come up and they begin coming up with these wrong ideals. There's a departing, a leaving. Over a period of time, they had what was called clinical baptism. Clinical baptism is when people are really sick, they need to be baptized, they haven't been baptized, we don't think we can immerse them, and so in this clinical case, somebody really sick, well, we'll just pour a little water and we'll call that baptism. That was clinical baptism. And that was really the only time it was supposed to have been practiced was when somebody really, really sick and didn't feel that they could be immersed in water, and so they called it clinical baptism. Well, then over time, people got thinking, well, you know, it's pretty convenient just to pour a little water over somebody's head instead of immersing them, even though they had baptistries. I mean, you go back into history, there, there were baptistries. Uh, they, they were called like fish pools, and, and that is because uh, people would be born of water in the baptistry. Immersion was the way it was practiced. That's what the Bible teaches, that baptism is an immersion. Just study Romans chapter 6 and talk about burial. We all know how we bury people. We put them down under the ground or we put them in a tomb, in a casement, if it's above ground like a mausoleum. But clinical baptism came along and then people began to practice it as common. Well, if it works for them and they are going to be right in the sight of God, well, why don't we just do that? You see, it's just a step away, another step away. And so various things that came up and got involved. You had this great falling away. Now there's something else about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In verse 6, and now, Paul says, And now you know what restrains. What would restrain iniquity? What? Law, lawlessness. What restrains is the word of God. That's what restrains. Is that, no, we've got to go by the Bible. We have to prove what's that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. We can't just assume it. See, that's the problem in our religious world. People just begin doing things and they have not proved by the law of God. And you have people that want to do something that's not according to God's will. And the call is, where does the Bible teach it? You've got to have book, chapter, and verse. You've got to have something in the scriptures that gives authority, that makes it lawful and right in the sight of God. Iniquity is not interested about what does the Bible teach. 
You see, that's what's going to restrain. Now, in verse 7, he says, uh, For the mystery of iniquity does already work, only he who now restrains. Who's, who restrains? Well, that's the brother or sister say, Hey, we've got to go by the Bible. We, we have to do what the Bible says. The Bible is what restrained. The who is the brother or sister who says, no, we're going to stand up for God. We're going to go by God's will. We've got to follow God's word. We've got to follow God's teaching. You just can't come in and, and introduce something that's not authorized from the Lord. That's what the Judaizers were doing. Well, you've got to be, except a man be circumcised after the man of Moses cannot be saved. And they go back to Old Testament scriptures to show where, yeah, circumcision was commanded throughout the Old Testament, no doubt. But it was not commanded in the New Testament. And when the apostles got together and talked about that, they looked at what God had revealed, and they saw by approved example, by necessary inference, and by direct commands and statements of Scripture that uh, that was not taught in the Scriptures. And so when they wrote the letter, it says, to whom we gave no such commandment. You see, they were going to go by the law of God, and people were standing and saying, oh, now you've got to be circumcised to be saved after the man of Moses. You see, that's iniquity. That's lawlessness. And so what restrains is the word of God, the divine message of God. And what, of course, uh, restrains is God's word and the who that is the one that holds to it. So the church was established in the first century, way back in the first century. Yeah, it was established. It was established. It was taught. It was, it was the, the word of God was revealed completely. But then there was this falling away. So the question comes up. Do we have to somehow show a continual line of faithful churches and disciples all the way back to the first century? In other words, the person that baptized me was Roland Tips. Well, who baptized Roland Tips? Well, I have to figure out who baptized Roland Tips. And we'll say Brother John. Well, then who baptized Brother John? Then we'd have to go back and say, well, now Brother John was baptized by Brother Theo. Well, who baptized Brother Theo? Well, Theo baptized by... And you'd have to trace all the way back to the New Testament, somehow prove that your baptism is valid because you have to go all the way back in tracing this lineage back by disciples or churches all the way back to the first century. That's what people sometimes assume. It's not so. That gets back to the Methuselah tree. Because you see, we have the incorruptible seed. All we got to do is plant this seed in the hearts of people. His seed goes back, way back here in the first century, has been faithfully handed down, incorruptible. How do we know that the word of God is incorruptible? Well, because it says so. Look there in Luke chapter 8, first off. Now, the parable is this, the seed. That isn't the parable. So here's the seer uh, going out sowing, and he's sowing seed. And what is the seed that is sown in the hearts of men? The seed is the word of God. People are going out teaching the gospel message, going out teaching the gospel message in the first century. The church was established. People were converted to the Lord Jesus Christ by receiving this incorruptible word. Look at 2 Peter, uh, first, excuse me, 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, 23-25. Peter says, Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God which lives and abides forever. What lives and abides forever? The word of God. There has been since the first century in the writing and the copying of these letters and the collection of these letters through the centuries, there have been all kinds of assaults against the Word of God trying to destroy it. There would be people that would say, I burn all the Bibles, and they burn a bunch of the Bibles. You know, okay, we've taken care of that, got rid of all of them. 
but there would be by divine providence they would be hidden and and taken care of out of sight and they weren't all destroyed and there are thousands of manuscripts from the first century and the first uh, copies that were made that had been handed down and there were the writings of the early church fathers where they would quote various passages uh, etc and so all that information was gathered up to give us this faithful incorruptible seed that's what Peter says now if we don't believe that you just might as well toss the whole the whole Bible out just toss it all out just go make up whatever you want to Either we're going to believe what the Bible says or we don't. I believe what the Bible says, that it's incorruptible. You look at the evidence, yeah, it was, it was faithfully preserved. Even though there have been lots of attacks against it, the, go, uh, the gospel has been faithfully uh, been brought to us, translated by people that are capable of translating into language that we understand. In fact, all kinds of languages. Yeah, Peter says... We're born again by the incorruptible word of God, which lives and, lives and abides forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. We see flowers bloom, and the flowers die. We see grass grow, and they die. We're going to get into frost, and it's going to kill plants down, and they're going to pass away. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So this seed from the first century that has been handed all the way down, you don't have to prove the connection by disciples or churches all the way back to the first century. All we have to do is plant this incorruptible seed in the hearts of human beings. Because when you plant a date palm seed that's two th almost 2,000 years old, what do you get? You get tomato plants? No. You get cantaloupe plants? No. You get watermelon plants? No. Though I like watermelon. But you don't get watermelon plant. When you plant the seed of a date palm, you're going to get one thing. You're going to get date palm. That's exactly what you're going to get. And that picture where this thing is growing and in time, somebody goes in there and chops it down, it's going to grow and it's going to begin to produce other seeds. And from that seed, you could plant them and you could preserve those seeds for 2,000 years and then they would grow again. That's the point. As long as you can preserve the seeds, then you can plant them and then they'll grow. And that's the way it is spiritually, is that we just simply teach the word of God. Look at what James said in connection with this also. Therefore, put away all filthiness and extreme wickedness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. You see, all we've got to do in 2022 is plant this incorruptible seed, the teachings of Jesus Christ in the hearts of people. And when you plant the seed of the word of God, what are you going to make? You're going to make one thing. You can make a Christian. You cannot make anything else. We look into the religious world today and we see all these denominations out here. Well, how do you have Methodists and Presbyterians and Pentecostals and Baptists and Catholics and all these different groups? How can that be? You're not taking simply the pure word of God. You can't do it. You can't plant this, the pure seed and get something else. The only thing you're going to make when you plant the word of God, the incorruptible word of God in the heart of an individual divine truth, you're going to make simply a Christian, a follower of Christ. You can't make anything else. In order to make some denomination, you've got to take the Bible plus. The Bible plus the Methodist discipline to make a Methodist. You've got to take the Bible plus the Baptist church manual to make a Baptist. 
You've got to take the Bible plus the Philadelphia Confession of Faith to make a Presbyterian. You've got to take the Bible plus church traditions and, and Catholic dogma in order to make a Roman Catholic. You can't take just the Bible and make anything else but simply a Christian because it is the incorruptible word of God and that's all we need. Even though there was a great fall in the way, you don't have to trace it all the way back 2,000 years. Just trace your faith and your conviction based upon the incorruptible word of God. Just have this planted in your heart. Stand upon what God's word says. Come to that knowledge. Believe it and obey it. And you're going, to be, you're going to become simply what? A Christian. A member of the Lord's church. And so that's the whole point about the Methuselah date palm tree. It illustrates this important principle for us. That is that we just simply plant the word of God in the hearts of men and women. And when this truth comes into our heart, it changes people, it changes people's thinking. And when this seed, this incorruptible seed, is planted in the hearts of individuals, well, what happens? Well, it starts to grow. Just like they found that seed up there in Masada, that, that date palm pit, that seed, they planted it, they put it in the soil, they watered it, they put it in the sun, and with the warmth of the sun, etc., it sprouted and it grew, and it became this big plant growing. From a seed almost 2,000 years old. That's all we need today. Is that we take this word of God. And plant it in the hearts of individuals. And therefore people can come. To the knowledge of divine truth. The plan of salvation has been clearly revealed. We hear this good news. It's right here in this book. The good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross. This book that has not been corrupted. That message that began back way back in the first century there. We're preaching that same message in 2022. And that is... Oh, I don't know what happened there. Uh, that is that we hear this gospel, we believe in Jesus, we repent, we confess our faith and be baptized. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Jesus said, uh, repent and turn. I tell you nay, except you repent, you shall all like repent. So we can give passages that talk about these steps. And when we are baptized into Christ Jesus, we come up a new creature in Christ. Just read Romans chapter 6, 3 through 6. We're planted with Christ. We're buried with Christ. We die with Christ. And we raise up with Christ. New life comes when we come up out of the watery grave of baptism. Then we're exhorted to endure to the end. And if we err, we come back through repentance and prayer. Just that same Jerusalem gospel. That same message, that same law, that same teaching that emanates from our Savior Jesus Christ. And when we simply do what the Bible teaches, you're just going to be one thing, and that is simply be a Christian. So if you're here and you need to respond to heaven's invitation, we can help you in any way. You come and let us know. We'll be glad to assist you while together as we stand and as we sing. <clears throat>